This episode of the Proceedings Podcast is brought to you by the members of the U.S. Naval Institute. Our members write, debate, and discuss key issues that ultimately strengthen the Navy, Marine Corps, and Coast Guard. Benefits include a subscription to our award-winning Proceedings Magazine, discounts to over a 1,000 titles from books published by the Naval Institute Press, and graphic novels from Dead Reckoning, a discounted subscription to Naval History Magazine, special invitations to conferences and events, and access to 146 years of archival information such as historic photos, oral histories, and so much more. For more, go to usni.org join. Welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. I'm Ward Carroll, the Naval Institute's Director of Outreach and Marketing. Joining me for this episode is my co-host, the Proceedings Editor-in-Chief, Bill Hamlet. Hello, Bill. Morning, Ward. So what do we have going on in the world of proceedings? We put the May issue to bed, and actually we're about to put the June issue to bed. Yeah, this uh, coming Friday, so it's a, it's a Monday morning for our listeners. We're up early to uh, to do the interview with our guest today, which is kind of exciting. I'm, I'm semi-awake. But this week is also the uh, the last week for production for the June issue of Proceedings. So for those who uh, aren't steeped in magazine publishing, about the middle of the month is when we have our deadline. Then it goes off to the printer who's up in Chicago, the Chicago area. So we call that Blue Lines, the last day where we're doing our final checks on the magazine. That'll be this Friday. So we're kind of rushing towards that deadline. Uh, and there's been a lot of exciting stuff happening at the Naval Academy, as you know, uh, kind of some semblance of getting back to normal, some big things happening, you know, for the Naval Institute, we're getting close to having the Jack C. Taylor Conference Center done. So uh, we, we took a tour. Uh, last week was our uh, monthly editorial board meeting. It was the first hybrid meeting of the COVID era. So we had about five of our editorial board members come to Beach Hall. And then uh, Pete, our CEO, took, him, took us all for a tour around the conference center. It's probably about 90% complete, 95. It's getting real close. It's still. still I, I wouldn't of, say 90%. I, I would say okay, okay. 75%. I mean, it, it's right. it sort of has the shape of a ship, but none of the wiring or the cats don't work. And there's, you know, there's so much work to do, which is the point. It's going to be a state of the art uh, in every way. The, the conference center, uh, the auditorium is amazing. The, the media center is amazing. It's going to redefine how we do the podcast and some other things will probably create or blow out our YouTube channel more. Um, and, and, and you'll see Bill and I uh, in video form probably more often and that sort of thing. That's so it's, a, it's, that's it's a scary thought. It's a scary thought. Um, and so <laughs> it, it's really exciting, but it's death by a thousand details. And, I walk through with our the person who's actually going to be running what we call the Jack. And, uh, you know, she was talking with the guy who's in charge of the media part of it. And it's just like you talk about a single element. Like, how do you want the light switches to work when you enter a room? Do you want the lights to automatically come on? Do you want the TVs to already be on? Do you want, you know, it's like that episode of Seinfeld where that handyman is like bugging the hell out of Jerry with all of, do you want hinges? Do you want sliders? Do you want, he's like, just do it. That's kind <laughs> of what our life's going to be like um, for the next six months for sure. But to your point, it really is coming together. The atrium glass is there. The Kugel ball is in a wooden box. Like it was shipped from Borneo, right? It looks like King Kong and it's moving. It's kind of creepy because you can look in through this like, cut out in the box and it's moving like it's alive 
Yeah. You know, so the Kugel, yeah, so so the Kugel, I'd never heard of a Kugel ball before, but it's a it's like a two ton, incredibly polished piece of granite that has uh, a world map. It's like a globe, right, etched in it. It's about the size of I, I don't know. It's got to be at least four feet in diameter. As I said, it weighs two tons and it floats on a little film of water, and you can with with one hand you can just like touch it, and it'll start moving. And it'll keep moving for like 24 hours. It, there's almost no friction. So they've got this, as you said, this sort of crate-like box built over it so that nothing falls on it during the construction phase. But that's uh, that's pretty cool. Yeah. Anyway, lots of, lots of fun stuff coming up. And then uh, on the Naval Academy proper, so the midshipmen class of 2021 getting ready to graduate. So that graduation is coming up, what, two and a half weeks from now. Um, we're going to have checkout day with uh, all the midshipmen all the first-class midshipmen, so we'll be there in uh, Alumni Hall to present them the gift of the Sabrowski Award, which is uh, given by Greg Glaros, uh, which is a, a gift of membership for all the graduating uh, class members who, who want to receive the gift, so that's exciting. We get to meet them and shake their hands. We'll be masked up, but they're all vaccinated. We're all vaccinated, so that comes up on the 21st. We have a um, an award ceremony for uh, the uh, stellar members of the class of 2021, some Naval Naval Institute uh, gifts of books, and uh, we give the Capstone Awards. So in the June issue of the magazine, we've got four uh, essays written by graduating midshipmen about their service selection. So a young Swoe's writing about uh, uh, the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea. They've got an aviator writing in aviation, a Marine Corps, uh, you know, submariner, et cetera. So those come up always in the June issue. So as they're bang out of the gate, they're a brand new ensign or second lieutenant, They've they've published their first proceedings article, so we look forward to actually getting to meet them. We you know did this last year, uh, COVID wise, and sent them the check and couldn't actually meet them. But this year, I'll go to that uh, that award ceremony, so that'll be fun. Yeah. And then the Blue Angels, as uh, we've we chatted about, flying their first show ever in the Super Hornet. So we'll actually get to uh, you know from the the deck of Beach Hall, we'll get to watch the Blue Angels in their first season flying the Super Hornet. So we're excited to see that. And also a side note to that. Uh, the uh, former Blue Angel CO, uh, his name is Captain Guido Bernacchi, works at the Naval Academy in leadership, ethics, and law. He was very instrumental in transitioning from Legacy Hornets to Super Hornets. And by the way, there are no more Legacy Hornets in the fleet. The last trap happened in mid-February. Uh, it was a Marine Corps VMFA uh, 323 Death Rattlers had the last trap in the Legacy Hornet. So... That's kind of amazing that we're not used because to me the Hornet's the new airplane, right? <laughs> I remember I saw my first Hornet at Pax River when I was a mid on Protramid. It was a blue and white one, you know, with the Boeing logo on it. It was like, there's your future. You who are going tactical aviation, and now those are gone, and uh, we're using all Super Hornets. And here comes the F thirty five, so forth and so on. So a couple other dates before we get to our guest. On Thursday, I'm going to the Expeditionary Warfare School to present the Lejeune Award. We also have a great relationship with EWS. They are uh, have a writing program that is part of what we participate in. We publish how many, Bill? At least the winner of the Lejeune the Award. And so I'll present a plaque to the winner. And uh, that's always a fun event. Uh, there's kind of a hybrid thing going on. It's like a, a drive-through version of their graduation where I'm like a you know a waitress at some you know 
drive-in movie like out of American Graffiti where I just hand the plaque through the window. Uh, so that's kind of weird, but it's great to be there in person. Love dealing with those guys and saying hi to our POC, Matt Erickson, and, and the CEO of EWS going there to uh, Geiger Hall, you know, Q-Town, which is where I lived when I was a plebe at the Naval Academy. My dad was stationed at Quantico. So doing that on Thursday. And then when is the annual meeting happening, Bill? Annual meeting is the 19th. Okay, the 19th. Uh, so that, and that is a, an event that has been, parts have been pre-recorded. So I, re, I pre-recorded my remarks uh, last week. Pete will do it live. So it'll be live and with some pre-recorded uh, sections, you know, the, the authors of the year, the general prize essay contest winners, they've all pre-recorded their remarks. And uh, and then there'll be live Q&A from our members, from our audience as well. So that'll be an exciting event at 1600 Eastern Daylight Time on the 19th of May. And we'll socialize the link for that. Um, I'm question curator guy like I was last year. So uh, looking forward to some really great, insightful and uh, erudite questions. Uh, that yeah, will Norman, be... Norman Polmar only gets one question. Remember that. <laughs> we love Norman. <laughs> All right. Enough repartee. Let's get to our guest, Bill. All right. Our guest today is joining us from Crystal City, Virginia. He is the second prize winner of last year's General Prize Essay Contest. His essay is titled Diving Off the Platform-Centric Mindset. It appears uh, in the May issue of Proceedings. The author is Lieutenant Commander Evan Carlick. He is an aerospace engineering duty officer in the United States Navy. He was a, a P-3 pilot before transitioning to the AEDO community, and now he works in the F-35 Joint Program Office. So, Lieutenant Commander Carlick, uh, welcome to the podcast. Great to have you. Thanks so much. Great to be with both of you. Uh, Bill, I think I first met you at the very end of 2019 at the Center for International Maritime Security holiday party uh, somewhere in downtown DC. Right. I think we had a, uh, a room in the back of the bar, and uh, it was great to meet you then. Great to be on the podcast with both of you. That's right. Well, thanks for writing for Proceedings. And, uh, and it, I mean, what an amazing thing that... Uh, the General Prize Essay Contest goes back, it's our oldest prize essay contest, goes back to, I think, 1879. Uh, some incredible luminaries have uh, won or placed in it, including uh, Alfred Thayer Mahan was, uh, I think, uh, a, an honorable mention in the first year that it ran. So you're uh, you're in very good company here. So, But let's you know just get right into your article. Let's dive into it. Diving off the platform-centric mindset. So in this, you basically say, that uh, upcoming algorithmic warfare will require an energetic focus on software updatability, not today's overwhelming emphasis on ship types and total numbers of ships. So the, the Navy has been, been you know, there's been a lot of news the last couple of years. You know, we need 355 ships. We need 500 ships. We need 350. You know, it's always based on a number. There's this argument about how many ship hauls. And you're saying, Hey, get rid of get rid of that idea. It, there's there's another concept of naval warfare that's got to overtake the, the ship number. Well, I, I think to start with, we should probably agree that, that the Navy needs to grow. And I, I don't know if I stated that as explicitly as I might have in the article, but we can just look at examples. Uh, obviously, in 2017, the various collisions we had in Seventh Fleet with the John S. McCain with the Fitzgerald. Um, there were some other incidents as well. And of course, that precipitated the Comprehensive Review, Strategic Readiness Review. So that just showed our surface fleet was overstretched, particularly in the 7th Fleet area of responsibility. We also hear Navy leaders like Admiral Harry Harris when he was commander of Indo-PACOM. Uh, he testified in Congress that the Navy only had about half 
of the fast attack submarines that he needed to fulfill his operational requirements. So we can think of several examples that show that the Navy's overstretched. We need to grow our Navy. Well, the, the sense that I get is that we're, we're so focused on, on numbers and trying to pin ourselves to a number and, and chatting back and forth about numbers. I think the idea for this article for me, it was probably born in late 2018. I was conducting a congressional fellowship. I had the, the pleasure of working in the House of Representatives for that year. So uh, for, for the Navy's uh, officers and senior listed out there, it's a great opportunity. So you can check it out, apply for the legislative fellowship. But uh, at, at the end of 2018, towards the end of my congressional fellowship year, there were some Navy leaders that providing a brief to members of the House Armed Services Committee. And there was one junior member who asked these these Navy leaders who were who were discussing the future fleet? His question was: Given the advent of autonomous surface vessels, autonomous undersea vehicles, is this 355 number that was codified in, in the 2018 National Defense Authorization Act is that going to shift somewhat based on new technologies that are coming online, autonomy, these new capabilities? Is this going to change, either up or down? Um, but but is that going to be the number going forward, year after year? And the response it didn't come from Navy leadership. It was actually from one of the more senior members on the House Armed Services Committee. And, and his response was basically, we'll take that for the record. We're not going to entertain that now. We'll make sure that the Navy comes to you with a briefing on the 2016 Navy the Nation Needs Force Structure Assessment. And we'll make sure that you understand why why 355 is the number and is the goal. And I thought, wow, we are awfully wedded to this 355 number. Uh, and it seemed to me like a very valid question. As capabilities change, as technology changes, we're going to need to revise that figure. And those who maybe have a bit more understanding about how these four structure assessments are conducted realize that there are so many assumptions that go into that modeling. There are assumptions like, what are the specific crises or, or conflicts that you're modeling? Um, where, where are the ships geographically? Or where are they home ported? How many are forward deployed? Are, are they sitting at port? Are they already underway and maybe closer to the, the crisis zone or conflict zone? Uh, how much time do you allow for transit? What's your requirement? Do ships need to report to this area in 10 days, 20 days, how fast you need to get forces on scene. There's so many aspects that go into modeling. So you can, you can tweak or, uh, or, or um, refine the model really however you want based on those assumptions to produce any figure that you might like. Uh, whether you want something that's 355, whether you want to suggest something more or something less, you can just dial in the assumptions to produce a desired number. And I live near Washington, D.C. It's somewhat of a cottage industry with the think tanks here because several of them have their own assessments as to what the future force structure should look like. I know Hudson Institute, I think the Center for Strategic and Budgetary Assessments have their own estimates. And it's very popular these days to, to branch off of that 355 number with, with an organization's own assessment of what the fleet should look like. This is all a very important discussion. Like, like I said, we can think of several examples that show the fleet is overstretched and need to grow. Of course, the Navy has just taken on more tasking in recent years. We do theater ballistic missile defense. We do counter-narcotics. We do 
humanitarian assistance and disaster relief, not to just mention forward presence, sea control, uh, power projection. There's, there's so much the Navy does these days, and it's global. I was a huge fan of the Navy's prior recruit, recruit, uh, recruiting slogan, Global Force for Good, because I think it really underlined that the Navy is a global force. We're around the world. We're operating every day, 24-7. Um, I, I think that the current one, Forged by the Sea, doesn't suggest that as much, though, of course, it suggests the pressure that the Navy is under. Because when you think of a forge, you think of heat, stress, being being shaped into something very hard. So I think with the Navy's prior recruit, recruiting slogan, we're a global force for good, as well as the current one, we're under heat and pressure and stress, the, the Navy does need to grow. Now, all that being said, I, I think we are spending too much time, energy, and oxygen talking about what is that total number? What should it be? What should the force mix be? And we're not focusing enough on algorithmic warfare, which which is warfare that will be conducted at a speed faster than, than human con- comprehension and human cognition. And we already see we're entering this era in fields like cyber warfare, electronic warfare, when so much of it is already automated, and we're only going to see this trend continue. So unless, unless the Navy starts thinking less about total numbers of ships and the force mix and starts thinking a bit more about how do we prepare for this era of algorithmic warfare where we're going to need the ability to update the algorithms, the software on our ships very rapidly. We're not going to be able to bring ships uh, it, you know, into port and update their, their software and infrastructure every 18 months if that's the typical cycle. We're going to need to be able to do this in a matter of days, in a matter of hours, maybe. And, and sometimes in a complex scenario, it, it might come down to minutes. So we're going to need to, to shift our mindset. Uh, the, the title is Diving Off the Platform-Centric Mindset, because usually when we dive, we do it headfirst, we do it with conviction. And I think that's the approach that the Navy will need to prepare for this next era of warfare, where the pace of conflict, it's, it's not determined by humans, it's determined by the algorithms that are resident within within our ships and uh, our autonomous vehicles. So Evan you you're in the procurement world. You're certainly you understand the, the 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 pressure on the navy. Your call to action is to the navy, but when you say hask or sasks, certainly they're caught up in the number because the number equals jobs in districts. And so as we talk about procurement reform, we talk about sh- shifting a mindset. We just sort of have to not to be cynical about it, but we have to have the reality of what's possible because the fact that we're civilian controlled and just so people understand that Congress gets the final vote with respect to the force multiples and procurement priorities and et cetera, et cetera. And so when a a member of Hask or Sask pushes back about, we're like, we don't care about the number. They're like, well, let me help you with that. Uh, We need a number and here's why. Right. So that's just something to sort of keep in mind as we have this conversation. Yes, I, I definitely agree. I think we do need a number to build towards. And of course, 355 that was entered in the 2018 National Defense Authorization Act. That is the law that the Navy is building towards that number. The, the challenge is how do you advocate for something that's less tangible than a destroyer 
or a fast attack submarine. And the Navy has seen challenge with articulating its vision before with, with the unmanned vehicles. So there was recently an unmanned camp- campaign plan that was unveiled. And the goal with that was to help articulate where is the Navy going with its unmanned vessels. Because in prior years, the Navy had tried to receive authorization to procure a ghost fleet of unmanned surface vessels and so forth. But Congress had pushed back saying, we don't quite understand how you intend to use these vehicles. And we'd like to see your planning, your modeling before we put dollars down. So uh, that's going to be the challenge motivating Congress to prepare for algorithmic warfare, motivating Congress to think of a Navy that's that becomes potent, not solely because of the armament on ships, the number of ships, but also because of the algorithms that are resident on these ships and the flexibility that these, these ships have with how rapidly can they update their algorithms, how rapidly can they ingest the latest uh, applications that are developed? How can they pull them down from the cloud? How can they pull down data? So one example that I mentioned in my piece is imagine you have a new Constellation class frigate that's in the Taiwan Strait and it's subject to, to jamming by the people, the People's Liberation Army, the Chinese military, whether it's land-based jamming, or maybe there's a, a sea-based platform that's conducting the jamming, but if you have this frigate that's, that's in a, a scenario, it's, uh, you know, left of wartime, you can call it, but whatever that frigate sees in terms of the electromagnetic spectrum, um, signals intelligence and so forth, it's going to want to share that data with other forces that are in the area of responsibility in the 7th Fleet AOR. So it's going to want to push that algorithmic after-action report out to its, out to its friends, um, back to headquarters very quickly. So um, that's kind of the first step. And ideally, we'd be able to do that in a number of minutes so everyone else in, in the joint force can be educated as to what the Chinese military is doing um, and, and be able to mitigate this jamming themselves, whatever new technique the Chinese might have developed, for example. And then we can think, maybe in a day, maybe in 48 hours, if we send this after-action report, if we send this data back to our experts in CONUS, would they be able to develop uh, revised software or a new application that could then be pushed out to the fleet at large and wherever the fleet is, they would have the tools not only to react intelligently uh, to such jamming, electromagnetic inter- interference or whatnot, but also maybe to, to exploit that or gain decision advantage. So what we really want to do is create a, our Navy so that we can we're operating on a, on a faster software development cadence and timeline than our adversary is. And that's really what's going to spell the difference in an era of algorithmic warfare. But, but we can be inside their decision loop and uh, inside their software update uh, loop as well. So one, one thinks about an iPhone update. You know, constant, I, you know every, every couple of days I get pushed uh, a new iOS uh, for my iPhone update automatically when it's plugged in at night. Yes, auto auto update. So this is a similar kind of thing you're talking about. Instead of the library being updated on that uh, the ESM system, uh, the Slick 32 or whatever the the uh, electro electromagnetic warfare system is for that that uh, ship, it receives that information, pushes it back to somewhere in Washington. The, you know, uh, CNAV uh, or Office of Naval Intelligence, they can update that library much quicker 
turn out a, a software fix for that particular jamming algorithm, push it back out, not just to that ship that's in the Taiwan Strait that you mentioned, but all the other ships in the in the class or all the other ships that have that same kind of electro, uh, electronic warfare system. I'm sure Washington has something to play, but I think the Navy Information Warfare Center, San Diego, uh, that probably is a key point uh, in this as well. There was an exercise that they did, NIWIC Pacific, called Compile to Combat in 24 Hours. And I think uh, Ben Admiral Barrett, I think the challenge she gave is we want to want to take new code, compile it, and push it to a ship pier side in no more than 24 hours. And I believe they beat that estimate. They did it something like eight hours. So we already have a pretty good head start at this. The, the thing to focus on is... Um, is developing this further. So we're not just doing these nice experiments that are, that are very controlled where we have NIWIC pushing software to a ship to your side and there isn't any necessarily any lead behind capability. We do it once, we say, hey, this was great. We want to regularize this, make it so we can do this routinely, comfortably, and, and that's where we need to be, be, be headed. Not, not to just do, do one-offs, uh, proof of concepts, but really work this into our doctrine and uh, and make it familiar to every surface warrior, uh, every submariner, and, and so forth. So it occurs to me, you work at the, the F-35 Joint Program Office, and you're an AV or uh, aerospace engineering duty officer, and you're writing this about you know the Navy in general, the fleet, and particularly you know diving off the, the platform-centric ship mindset. Um, is the F-35 program or is naval aviation perhaps ahead on this kind of a process? Are they thinking about this or have they been moving towards this uh, adaptability, the speed of algorithmic warfare faster than perhaps the submarine force or the surface force? Is 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 there a part of the Navy that's leading this uh, capability? Well, I can speak to the F-35 briefly. And the goal with the F-35 is to update the OFP, the Operational Flight Program, which comprises both the vehicle system software, the, the flight controls, and the mission system software. So that would be uh, electronic warfare, uh, radar, the um, the EOIR, the electro-optical infrared sensors and all that, all the mission systems. The goal is to update the software that operates those systems every six months. So that's, it's certainly uh, a fast cadence. And ultimately, that'll that'll just need to be accelerated, not only for F-35, um, if, if we truly want these platforms to remain relevant uh, in, in an algorithmic warfare scenario, uh, not only for our aircraft, but also for our ships, of course. Before we leave that, when, when you talk about control laws, so my question as, a, as an aviator is, so there's a training component. So let's say overnight, we update the airplane's control laws as a pilot that probably matters to me. Um, so how am I aware that the airplane performance has been tweaked and is there a training piece that's built into these updates? There certainly is. And I know it's, it's much easier to do if you're updating software every six months than if you're, if you're updating it every few days. I don't necessarily think that, uh, that across the board, everything needs to be updated with each OFP push, for instance. So maybe, uh, Maybe with an update to an aircraft, to a ship, there'll be only one specific component that would be updated as opposed to the how you govern the gas turbine on a ship and, and how you govern the, the plumbing. Um, it might just be a mission systems update. But, but of course, 
Uh, with any software update, there's documentation that's released as well. There's a readme so the user can can check out, okay, exactly what's changed, how might the interface look different, uh, how might inputs be different. So we can expect that as well uh, with, uh, with these sorts of updates going forward. I, I think some updates also might be rather hard to notice if it's an update that, that governs autonomy that's already been built into the ship, uh, then the human user might not necessarily notice it. it. It might not be as evident. One of the benefits of working at the F-35 program office is exposure to what the Air Force is doing. And Dr. Will Roper, who used to be the Air Force's assistant secretary uh, for, for acquisition, for technology, for logistics, he wrote a piece in, in October of 2020 um, and it was it was called There Is No Spoon, and it's Matrix-themed. If you like the movie, you probably get a kick out of reading this document, and it looks like the Matrix. The, the pages are black. They have green text. It looks like the, the characters that you see are running across the screens of the Matrix. But he's very keen on, on digital acquisition, so the idea is if you can model a system, whether it's an aircraft, whether it's a ship, if you can model it digitally, create a digital twin, where not only the mechanical relationships are represented, but the software is also integrated in this digital twin. You can update software and, and test it in a in a virtual fashion on this digital twin before it's ever delivered to the to the real life system. And what that saves you from is doing regression testing. So if you're updating the vehicle system software for an aircraft, you do regression testing. You know, you test it in a lab. You provide it to test pilots. They do a certain number of flights, make sure it's safe, make sure it's predictable. Uh, but what Dr. Roper tries to articulate is if we can if we can create a highly functional digital twin for every system, and if we have the confidence that this digital twin is completely representative of the real-life hardware, we can test software, validate software digitally, and, and have the confidence that, as he says, if a container runs on your laptop, meaning a software container that, that contains this update, for instance, it'll run on a jet, a satellite, or a weapon the exact same way. So creating these digital twins will provide us the confidence to move to this, you know, this new regime where we are pushing software uh, very quickly. Yeah. He raises very, very valid points. He says, I mean, how, how long can we expect software to remain relevant against an AI-enabled adversary. If China, for instance, is developing AI-enabled cyber warfare capabilities or AI-enabled electronic warfare and jamming capabilities, how long can we expect our systems to remain relevant against that if, if, if the learning, if the operation is taking place at faster than human speeds? So that's really our, our call to arms here. We need to be uh, getting to a place where uh, we're pushing software algorithms that can deal with these challenges uh, in, in a matter of days or hours. So you have a quote in here from uh, Bob Work, former Deputy Secretary of Defense, who's also on our, he's the chair of our board of directors. And uh, the quote is, the nation that first masters human-machine collaboration and teaming across the levels of war will have a multi-decade advantage in battle. So that that's a weighty you know, quote, right? So we want to move fast, but at the same time, you know, in the United States, there are two things that, that come to my mind. One is, uh, you know, Ward brought this up just a few minutes ago about the, the pilot. The pilot wants to know, right, for safety reasons, 
we don't make changes super fast to software that governs, you know, how a, a ship runs, how an airplane flies, because we want to test it for safety perspective, right? We want to make sure that that F-35 that's taken off at Oceana is not going to crash into a local neighborhood because of a software update that was not properly tested, right? We want to make sure that a ship's weapon system is not going to just uh, start launching weapon system, you know, start launching weapons on its own, you know, without a human in the loop. We want to make sure that if we're getting close to being in combat, that the decision to engage uh, lethal force is made by a human being and not by a, uh, a machine. But I, I don't know if the Chinese leadership or I don't know if the Russian leadership has those same level, that, that same level of concern, right? So they could move faster in this direction uh, because their their threshold of, of pain, their threshold of safety, their threshold of uh, man in the loop, perhaps, um, is less. You know, they their their goal is to win, not necessarily to uh, have that level of safety or or human control over the engagement. So, I, I'm curious, what what are you hearing about where the Chinese are moving or the Russians are moving, and are they moving faster than us in this, or are they just moving in capabilities that will undermine our ability to do this? If that makes sense. I might leave some of those questions to the intelligence experts as to Chinese and Russian uh, advances in artificial intelligence and automation. But it, one thing that I relate in my article is that there is strength in human-machine teaming, that we don't necessarily need to turn everything over to automation and to algorithms. Because I, I speak about Gary Kasparov, who, of course, is probably the, the most famous chess grandmaster in the world. And what he's seen is that a human who knows chess, who knows chess strategy, paired with a, a chess algorithm that can look through thousands or millions of possible moves and provide recommendations, that that pairing is stronger than a human player alone, even if that human player might be a grandmaster. And it's also stronger than computers alone, even a supercomputer. So, so that pairing is a true strength that I think a lot of people, they might hear about algorithmic warfare and automation, and they might think that this is scary because we're going to turn everything over to machines. Um, but but there is real strength that comes with this pairing. Uh, and I, I think in some places, warfare will be nearly completely automated uh, in cyber warfare and electronic warfare. But in other places, like if, if there is release of missiles, for instance, I, I think uh, there, there will be humans in the loop or on the loop at least, um, and and that that pairing will only make make our fleet e even more potent, even more flexible, um, in the sense that we can also flow in um, other considerations like all of armed conflicts, international law and norms. But, but but yeah, that pairing I think is something that we can be excited about and encouraged by. We don't necessarily need to turn everything for automation, you know, flipping a switch, so to speak, where all of a sudden humans are out of the picture, commanders are out of the picture, and we're, you know, it's the machines running the show. Another quote that that I mentioned is one from Lieutenant General Jack Shanahan, who used to lead the Joint Artificial Intelligence Center. And in his mind, algorithm warfare uh, is just going to completely upend how we how we understand conflict. He says, we're going to be shocked at the speed, the chaos, the bloodiness, the friction. And he says that action will be taking place in, in the order of microseconds. It has to be algorithm against algorithm. 
because if we're trying to do this by humans against machines and the other side has the machines and the algorithms and we don't, we're at an unacceptably high risk of losing that conflict. So there is a comfort factor with this, of course, but we're also going to be accelerated towards this by, like you say, Bill, by what China and Russia are doing. Because once we realize that they're moving more in the algorithmic direction, we're going to have to keep pace. Otherwise, we're putting ourselves at a decisive disadvantage. Based on what you just said, I think of, uh, you know, high le- a high level of tension, right? So South China Sea, maybe the, the U.S. has got a couple of carrier strike groups operating in the South China Sea doing freedom of navigation kinds of operations where a couple of years in the future, relations with China have gotten worse. Uh, and suddenly that, for some reason, is the day that the Chinese decide, you know what, we're done. We're done dealing with this American, you know, Navy in our in our lake, uh, in our backyard, and we want to send a message. And that that fight kicks off maybe with uh, a cyber attack. And so to your point, algorithmic warfare, I'm just trying to get wrap my mind around what that might be. And if uh, if there's a backdoor entry, if there's a if there's a software, uh, you know, weakness, and the Chinese have learned that they can exploit that, and suddenly they're in our systems and they're shutting things down very rapidly. To your point about machines have got to be able to move much faster than human beings. In this case, the machine's got to recognize that it's being attacked, right? Even before the, the commander of the ship, uh, perhaps at DDG, uh, and then be able to react to that and make a decision to shut that off and then, and then the counter reaction, right? What's the counter reaction? It's understanding what that was, getting that information back so it can be analyzed really quickly back in places like San Diego or O and I or you know uh, or Washington D.C. And then pushing a, an over-the-air update out to that ship so they can defend themselves and bring their systems back online. Is that kind of what we're talking about here? I think you articulated it nicely. That there is, of course, a lot of concern with the network that would be required to push these updates to to a ship anywhere at any time. Because, of course, as you create a more networked force, uh, one might think that that would create more opportunities for infiltration, for cyber attack. Uh, I'd say that one thing that they saw in the C2, uh, C24, the compile the combat in 24 hours experiment that Nywick Pacific did, is that streamlining the information infrastructure on the ship was actually... It, an improvement, even though the ship was networked in the in the sense that it could pull applications from a cloud. The fact that in order to do this, they had to streamline the ship's software architecture, meant that the attack surface was actually smaller. And the ship also, according to Admiral Barrett, uh, the ship was also able to detect and react and respond to these sorts of intrusions or attacks much more rapidly than were previously possible. So there's both an algorithmic standpoint to to threat detection in terms of uh, in terms of cyber attacks, and there's, the other component is okay. Well, once you detect an attack, uh, how do you self-assess, and how do you get a patch or an update so that you'd be impervious to similar attacks in the future? And doing this at scale, so it's not just maybe the ship or the surface action group or the carrier strike group that would be receiving this update, but across the board. And I imagine that would just completely flummox the Chinese, right? We have this amazing cyber tool that we instituted, used in in one specific geographic location at one time. 
And then, gosh, a day later, the entire U.S. Navy is impervious to this. It, it, it's going to really set them back on their heels. Um, it, it would make any adversary understand that, wow, the, the, the cost of trying to develop new tools, um, new, new attacks is maybe prohibited given the sense that if, if the U.S. Navy can, can learn from these and, and update its fleet at large uh, you know, faster than we can create new algorithmic weapons, then, then gosh, I guess we're just going to have to back off uh, for the moment and reconsider. No, that, I, I'm, I really appreciate that you, you ended on a high note there because I was starting to get really depressed about where this right, might be going right. in terms of uh, the algorithmic advantage and whether we would have it or not. But uh, yeah, I think that's, that's a great point. You make a good point about why we need to focus on this, right? And I think building this network is maybe going to be a little bit easier than we might have thought. Uh, those who might be familiar with JADC2, Joint All-Domain Command and Control, and the Navy's Project Overmatch, the idea is, is that will be the network that will uh, provide command and control, situational awareness, uh, provide the ability to pass targeting data from any platform to, to any other shooter. And if we have this military internet of things, so to speak, where we have our platforms connected in a very adaptable, very flexible manner, that could as well be the backbone by which we're pushing software from uh, from ships that have seen adversary algorithms and learned from them. Um, so there could be uh, data and algorithms passed between ships, or it could also come from CONUS, like you mentioned. It could come from uh, warfare labs in the D.C. area. It could come from, uh, could come from NIWIC. Or uh, or Navor as well. So um, I, I think Overmatch JADC2. We should also look to it not only as a command and control, situational awareness, uh, um, you know, targeting data network, but also a network that we, we can use to pass new algorithms, software updates, data libraries, and so forth. Well, we've been talking to Lieutenant Commander Evan Carlick. He is an aerospace engineering duty officer of the U.S. Navy. Uh, his article is in the May issue of Proceedings, won second prize in our general prize essay contest this year. It's titled Diving Off the Platform-Centric Mindset. It starts on page 26 and 27 of the May Proceedings. Evan, congratulations. Thanks for being on the show. You were very articulate about something that is, uh, in my small uh, political science mind, very difficult to, uh, to encapsulate. But thank you. Thank you both. It was fantastic speaking with you. Appreciate it. Uh, your service, not just from both of you or active duty in the Navy, but also what you're doing now as thought leaders for the U.S. Naval Institute for promoting this sort of dialogue. And uh, thank you very much for what you continue to do and uh, in support of our sea services. Uh, thanks very much. And uh, for our listeners, also, if you tune into the uh, annual meeting of the Naval Institute on 19 May, you'll hear Commander Carlick give his uh, acceptance speech for the uh, for winning the award, and I've I've already heard it. It was great. So previews of coming attraction, very nicely done. So, well, that wraps up another episode of the Proceedings Podcast. Uh, thank you for joining us, and we'll catch you next week. Until then, remember, victory begins at the Naval Institute. <laughs>